You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, uh, peace be upon you, good morning, and welcome to the Bakwa Shua, the voice of Islam, with Imam Tawqeet Tanwi Khan and myself, Walid Ahmed. Um, we have a very packed program, as always, this morning. Uh, it is an interactive broadcast. It means our listeners have the opportunity to ring in if they wish to and share their thoughts and views on whatever we may be discussing. The number to dial is 0208-687-7878. You can also uh, post your thoughts on X, and the handle, uh, if that is the right phrase, is uh, Voice of Islam UK. Uh, in a few minutes, I will give you a rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are circulating in within the anti-Muslim community uh, and also look at uh, those stories that are featuring elsewhere uh, around the wider media. I uh, won't be spending too much uh, time on each, but uh, we'll try and rattle through as many as possible during the first 15-20 minutes. Um, and as I've mentioned before, if you want to uh, air your thoughts, then you're most welcome to do so uh, using the uh, phone number that I mentioned. Uh, I'll repeat it again, 0208-687-7878, or um, uh, posting your thoughts on X, uh, Voice of Islam UK is the handle to use. Um, now, those familiar with the show will also remember that we do hone in on two particular stories that we spent more time on. Uh, and uh, this morning we were looking uh, with our first topic on the injustices or inequalities that uh, uh, appear in society. Uh, so the title of the first uh, topic is Zero Discrimination Day. And to help us understand this topic better, we shall be joined by Dr. Leiden uh, Hashimi, uh, she is an internationally recognized uh, expert in the application of advanced qualitative research methods in both social science and epidemiology, uh, with an emphasis on the intersection of gender, domestic violence, and its harms on health and society. And uh, for this part of the show, we also expect to talk to uh, Hiba Wardair. Uh, she was born in uh, Somalia and came to London as a teenage refugee in 1989, fleeing the uh, civil war that was taking place in her country. She happens to be one of Britain's most prominent campaigners against uh, FGM, female genital mutilation, and has also written and published a book called Cut, One Woman's Fight Against FGM in Britain Today. Uh, after the 8 o'clock uh, news, we shall remain... Uh, with this topic, and listen to Dr. Richard Cooper, who talked to us earlier. Uh, Dr. Cooper is uh, director of BSW program uh, and uh, coordinator of African American Studies at Widener University in the United States of America. Um, so uh, we'll be discussing that particular topic uh, up to 8.15. So between 7.15 and 8.15 is when that particular subject is going to be covered. So if you are interested in that, make sure you're tuned in uh, or you're meant tuned in during those times. Um, and as I said, if you want to share your thoughts on anything that we may be discussing, 0208-687-7878 is the number to dial. 
Moving on to the second main topic, it's dealing with the carnage taking place in the Middle East, with literally tens of thousands, mostly women and children, losing their lives or being maimed by the relentless onslaught that is being witnessed there. But the point we, we hope to make through this topic is that this conflict should not be construed to be one of a dispute between religions, since Muslims and Jews have lived with each other for centuries in the past. Thus, the subject we are going to be exploring is quite simply Jewish and Muslim coexistence. And for this, we'll be speaking to uh, Dr. Yusuf Rappaport, who is Professor of Islamic History at uh, Queen Mary University, London, where he teaches uh, classes on women and gender in medieval Islam on Ibn Taymiyyah and on the uh, pre-modern history of Palestine. So, uh, that um, he will also she will also be joining us. Uh, he will also be joining us in that part of the program, as will Dr. Yehuda Stoloff. Uh, and Dr. Stoloff is the executive director of the Interfaith Encounter Association, building peace, intercommunal relations in the Holy Land. And uh, he will also be joining us in this part of the program. So it is a very uh, uh, tight. A heavily packed uh, itinerary we have, and as always, we will have, of course, the Islamic um, viewpoint from um, our resident Imam, uh, Imam Tawqeetunui Khan. And now that I've mentioned his name, I think it's best if I pass the proceedings on to him. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, uh, Imam Tawqeet. Wa alaikum assalam uh, Yes, so we'll start off with the weather and. Uh, uh, the forecast for for today is that a wet start with gusty winds and rain to soon clear, uh, leaving drier and brighter intervals before blustery showers drive through from the southwest and a risk of hail, thunder and some uh, winterness in places. And the forecast for tonight is that winds easing tonight with uh, scattered showers moving in from the south and west and more frequent and slow moving later under light winds at a further risk of hail, thunder and some um, winterness in places. So that's the forecast for day. I mean, right now here in London, it is very heavy rain and a moderate breeze. So uh, just, uh, uh, you know, when you are going out as well, do make sure that you do have a jacket and umbrella um as as it is raining very heavily so that's the weather forecast for today and uh, i think i'll start off uh the news roundup uh with this one particular item uh which is from bbc news and it is that more than a million people obese worldwide researchers suggest and uh the research says that more than a billion people are living with obesity around the world and uh, global estimates published in the Lancaster show. And this includes about 880 million adults, 159 million children, and according to data uh, of 2022. So the highest rates, are, according to the re- this research, are found in Tonga, uh, American Samoa for women, and American Samoa and Nauru for men with some 70 to 80% of adults living with obesity. And out of 190 countries, the UK ranks 55th highest for men and 87th for women. So the international team of scientists say that there is an urgent need 
for major changes in how obesity is tackled. Obesity can increase the risk of developing many serious health conditions including heart disease, type 2 diabetes and some cancers and ranking global obesity rates the percentage of population classed as obese after age differences are accounted for. Researchers found that US comes number 10th highest for men and 36th highest for women. Uh, India ranks uh, the 19th lowest for women and 21st lowest for men whereas China uh, is 11th lowest for women and 22nd lowest for men. Uh, so we see that even within Islam when it comes to eating habits as well. Islam is actually very very strict on uh, your eating habits as well and it mentions that we should uh, we should have moderation in when it comes to eating as well. There is a very famous narration of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him where he mentions that uh, you should eat one third, you should drink one third and one third should be left uh, for air, uh, meaning that uh, you know you should just you should just uh, eat one third and drink one third, and that that should be enough. And uh, even when it comes to exercise as well, uh, we know that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has uh, mentioned that the famous quote that Al Mu'min Al Qawiyyu Min Mu'min that a healthy believer is better than a weak believer. Meaning that uh, if you are healthy, then you are able to not only perform your day-to-day tasks, but also you are able to do justice towards your five daily prayers as well. So <clears throat> uh, that's one particular news item I wanted to discuss. Oh, no, thank you very much. Um, well, as far as the Amdi Muslim community is concerned, we are preparing for this peace conference that's going to be taking place. Uh, in uh, just over a week's time, Saturday week is uh, when it's uh, been scheduled for. So this is uh, something that has been held ever since the mosque was opened uh, in back in 2003. And it's an event, well, there may have been a break uh, during the uh, COVID restrictions, but other than that, it's been held uh, very regularly every year. And uh, it's, uh, it's a means of, or it's an occasion where uh, people from different faiths and um, um, different parts of the uh, uh, political fraternity are invited in and also of different uh, leading professionals in uh, other uh, um, in other condition situations in inside people like um, headmasters and uh, head teachers um, and so forth and so on and um, uh, company executives um, invited to share their thoughts and to listen uh, to uh, how to promote uh, peace uh, in our communities. So that's a, it's a very um, uh, landmark event or uh, in, the, um, in the calendar of the Amdiya Muslim community uh, in the UK. So that's going to be happening again on the 9th of March. Uh, so that's uh, uh, the preparation for that are underway. And then we also have a lot of visitors at the mosque. Um, we had, um, we are expecting 160 visitors next this coming week, um, mainly of uh, school children um, wanting to know more about the mosque and about Islam. And um, 
Um, the same was the case in the week that's just gone, or similar was the case in the week that's just gone, that we had uh, uh, delegations, should I say, or groups from three or four different schools who came to visit the mosque. Uh, so it's a good way of introducing uh, the young uh, to, a diff- uh, to Islam uh, and those who are not familiar with Islam to, uh, to become acquainted with uh, its beliefs and uh, where those beliefs are actually practiced. Um, as far as the big news of the uh, day in the wider media is concerned, it's the by-election results in Rochdale and the fact that uh, Mr. George Galloway has stormed to victory with, uh, what was it, just over 12,000 uh, votes, uh, beating, well, his nearest rival was an independent, uh, David Tully, who uh, achieved half that and um, the remarkable thing is that the big parties, both the Conservatives and Labour, uh, were not able to muster even uh, a runner-up spot, uh, but were third and fourth, uh, respectively. Um, and so that's uh, certainly news. Um, I think we need to press on because uh, of the other uh, information or the other stories that we have, uh, information for the stories, which is quite uh, um, a lot. So uh, we need to start with the um, first of our main stories. And if we do have time, we can come back to uh, what is going on around uh, the world, particularly what is going on in the wider community in in the UK. And we can uh, spend some time on that. Now, as far as... um, uh, this particular topic is concerned. Uh, it's uh, regarding, as I said, uh, Zero Discrimination Day, what I mentioned at the top of the program, that we're going to be dealing uh, with um, the first of our main topics being Zero uh, Discrimination Day. Um, so this is... Um, um, let me just get to... Yes, so this is something that's... Um, uh, normally celebrated on the 1st of March, uh, the, this right for everyone to live a full and productive life and live with, uh, it with uh, dignity. And uh, the, the day highlights how people can become informed about uh, and promote uh, inclusion, uh, compassion, peace, and above all, a movement for change. That's what Zero Disc- Discrimination Day is, a part, is a, about. It's about helping to create a global uh, movement of solidarity to end all forms of discrimination. Um, The um, uh, day or the event, uh, however you want to describe it, was established by UN AIDS 10 years ago to advocate uh, and promote equality and fairness for everyone regardless of gender, age, uh, sexuality, ethnicity or HIV status. However, there are still still, um, uh, problems evident. This can be seen through the attacks on the rights of women and girls and of other marginalized communities. Uh, These attacks um, are um, on the rise, unfortunately. This can also be seen where uh, laws, practices on social norms, enshrine punishment, uh, discrimination or stigma for the sole reason of being women uh, or being migrants. Uh, this results in uh, failing public health as these communities are pushed away 
from Vital Health and Social Services. Um, Winnie uh, Biantima, Executive Director of uh, UNAIDS, also stated that the attacks, and this is a quote from her, um, that the um, attacks on rights are a threat to freedom and democracy and are harmful to health. Uh, stigma and discrimination obstruct HIV prevention, testing, uh, treatment and care, and hold back uh, pro- progress uh, towards ending AIDS by 2030. It is only, uh, she, she adds, it is only by protecting everyone's rights that we can protect everyone's health. There are, There has been progress at the start of the AIDS pandemic 40 years ago, uh, 38 countries around the world have uh, ch- uh, pledged to end HIV-related um, stigma and discrimination, and today 50 million more girls are in school than in 2015. So that's certainly progress as far as or the latter uh, aspect is uh, certainly indicative of the progress made uh, in respect of women and girls and respect of their education. To uh, continue this progress, UNAIDS urges support for women's movements and for racial uh, justice, for economic justice, for climate justice, and for peace. As communities across the world uh, stand up for rights, the United Nations is not only on their side, but by their side. Um, on this uh, particular day, uh, the 1st of March, Zero Discrimination Day, uh, and across the whole month of March, events and activities will remind the world of this vital lesson and call to action by protecting everyone's health. Uh, we can uh, uh, um, protect um, everyone's health, uh, and that's certainly uh, an objective that we want to uh, achieve through this, um, uh, through the initiatives of Zero Discrimination Day. Uh, through upholding rights for all, we will be able to achieve the sustainable development goals and to secure a safer, fairer, kinder, and happier world for everyone, at least. And that's what uh, is espoused by uh, Ms. Right, so that's um, uh, what we have to say about uh, Zero Discrimination Day, uh, certainly at my end, but um, there is an Islamic viewpoint, and we are also hoping to to be joined by Dr. Uh, Ladan Hashemi uh, to to discuss this particular topic further. Anything that we want to add on... uh, uh, the Islamic viewpoint at this stage? Yes, uh, so, I mean, this this particular segment is more mainly, mainly focusing on when it comes to uh, medical aid as well, that if everyone, uh, no matter which background they're from, which caste they're from, um, you know, we, we should be helping um, every individual from every single background. But generally, if we look at the Holy Quran and the Holy Quran itself, it plays a huge role in highlighting the fact that, uh, you know, all tribes and all communities uh, are equal. And this is highlighted in in uh, chapter 49, verse 13 of the Holy Quran. It mentioned in Surah Al-Hujrat, in the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful, so that, O mankind, Indeed, we have created you from male and female and made you people, peoples and tribes 
that you may know one another. Indeed, the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is is the is the most righteous of you. Indeed, Allah is knowing and acquainted. And in this particular verse of the Holy Quran, uh, the notion of racial supremacy um, that itself is condemned by emphasizing the fundamental equality of all human beings and it asserts that people come from different backgrounds and belong to various tribes and nations not to elevate one group over another but to foster understanding and cooperation amongst them Um, and in this essence this verse it underscores the principle that no person or group inherently better than another based on racial or tribal identity it promotes equality mutual respect and harmony amongst people of diverse backgrounds discouraging any form of discrimination prejudice based on race and ethnicity so that that is what is highlighted in this verse um and uh, you know quite often uh, when we are um, going out there and meeting different peoples as well um, of different faiths um, there's a there's an initiative amongst the youth these days we're highlighting the uh, western's la- largest mosque in western Europe and we're telling visitors to come here as well a question we often get asked is that uh, we thought that only Muslims are allowed to enter the mosques but we say that look Islam itself is shows equality and everyone is welcome into our mosques and there is absolutely no sort of discrimination or you know any sort of um that notion of racial supremacy that itself islam itself condemns it in every way so you know when it comes to equality islam is very clear on that and we see that um quite especially you know i've seen at the at the time of uh, going for umrah or for for hajj you'll, you'll see that makkah itself when at the pilgrimage that itself is a hub to all people of all walks of life as well you'll find people from all over the world and that's that is the, that vibrant religion islam that it uh, it it shows equality to every single individual so i i believe we are just waiting for our first guest on um uh, we will be listening very shortly to um dr laden hashmi and uh, she has interna- she has internationally been recognized in the application of advanced quantitative research methods in both social science and epidemiology with an emphasis on intersection of gender domestic violence and its harms to health and society she joined city uh, university of london as a research fellow in health science with the with the violence and society center in february 2022 she has a joint appointment with the university of auckland New Zealand, where she has worked as a senior research fellow, the lead investigator of an adverse childhood experience study. And previously, um, 
as the lead analyst of the 2019 New New Zealand Family Violence Study since 2017. So we're going to be uh, listening to Dr. Hashmi uh, very soon. Uh, yes, I do believe we are joined. Uh, over to you, Brother. Yes, certainly. Um, uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Hashmi. Thank you very much for joining us on The Voice of Islam. Hi, good morning. Um, yes, um, we gave a, a brief introduction of uh, who you are and uh, your background. Um, can I begin by asking you, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us about the types of discriminations that exist? Sure. Uh, discrimination could uh, manifest in many different forms and across different stages of life and across different life um, stage also, like uh, in childhood or adulthood. And includes um, a very common form is racial discrimination. This is where someone is treated very unfairly because of their race or ethnicity. Um, it could be gender discrimination when someone is treated differently or unfairly because they are women or men. And, or, for example, a very uh, common example is uh, unequal pay and unequal gender opportunity um, for men and women. People can be discriminated because of their age, and that would, is more common for younger or older people. And uh, an example would be age discrimination in workplace. Uh, people can be discriminated because of the sexual orientation they have. They could be harassed. They could be um, experiencing exclusion from the workplace or education or whatever because of their sexual orientation. Another common type of discrimination is called disability discrimination, which is happening uh, when someone, because uh, they are treated unfairly because they have mental or physical disability, and uh, the type of dis discrimination they experience could be um, including denying access to services, facilities, or accessing um, to reasonable accommodation or something which is tailored um, for their disability needs, or if they might be excluded from employment opportunities only because of the disability they have. Another type of discrimination is religious discrimination, when people are treated unfairly because of their affiliation to a specific religion, um, and uh, it is also one type. Another one is when people are discriminated because of their, their origin country that they uh, migrated from, they uh, came from, and even for the accent, the accent they have, they might be discriminated, discriminated because of that one. Another one is uh, when people are treated unfairly because of the poverty they are experiencing. So on top of the um, socioeconomic disadvantage that poor people are experiencing, they might also be treated unfairly because of living with poverty. Uh, another one which is uh, exclusive to women is pregnancy discrimination. When pregnant women or the or women who just had a baby um, are treated unfairly or excluded from employment uh, or forced to unemployment because of the, the pregnancy or um, having child. What is important when uh, discussing all this type of disability, uh, sorry, uh, discrimination, which the list can go on, uh, is that 
in reality, they usually happen uh, at the same time. Some of them happening happening at the same time. So it's a complex um, intersect when someone is experiencing many different types of discrimination, like being a woman, being pregnant, um, being from that specific religion group, that would increase the risk of uh, being treated unfairly. I mean, that's a very wide uh, range of areas where discrimination can feature. Uh, would you say that everyone in some way or another is subject to discrimination? They could be. Uh, we call them protective characteristic in the UK. Mm-hmm. And everyone should be treated equally, regardless of what, what are their the characteristics, what are their gender, what is their age, what is their uh, health status. Uh, and it is illegal to treat people unfairly because of their characteristic. Mm. Um, I've got GBV mentioned in my notes. What is GBV and what systematic inequalities exist that uh, enable it to be perpetuated? So this is um, a specific area that I'm researching on is a GBV or GBV stands for gender-based violence. Uh-huh. And gender-based violence uh, refers to any harmful act that is perpetrated against a person because of their gender or because of their perceived gender. And uh, it can come in many different forms uh, and types, including physical, psychological, sexual, economic abuse, and it could happen at home or it could happen at public spaces or workplace or anywhere. And um, GBV is very prevalent. It's not specific to UK or any specific part of the world and could happen to anyone with any gender. But we call it gender-based violence. It's, it's more likely to happen and to women and girls, and women and girls are, are at much higher risk to experience GBV and to be impacted by um, the consequences of GBV. Um, mm-hmm. Are, are you okay. saying it's very prevalent? It is very prevalent, it is, yeah. The the prevalence uh, varies, I mean, across the countries, so it's not like exactly the same in uh, different parts of the the world, but it is prevalent even in the UK. uh, Every um, one out of three women, they are more likely, they are uh, likely to experience GPP in one or another form in their life. And is is this physical violence or... Uh, violence of a different nature? It could be physical, it could be psychological, it could be economic, it could be emotional abuse or violence. Yeah, it could take many different forms. Mm -hmm. And what impact does domestic violence have on young children and their development as it is, as, and is it possible for them to, to heal and recover? Sure. Uh, This is a very important question because, um, because of the the situation that children have and they're relying on their parents to provide them with a safe and a stable environment to grow up. So children impacted by domestic violence, they can experience that in many different forms. So it could be their own direct exposure or experience of violence, like child abuse, child physical, child sexual, uh, child psychological abuse, or it could be because they are witnessing violence in their household, like the father is beating or abusing the mother. So witnessing violence against mother is also a domestic violence that children might be exposed to. And our research shows that they not only 
um, the impact of exposing to such a violence at home uh, it could be immediate. It could be during the, their childhood, exp- uh, childhood period. So children exposed to domestic violence are more likely to experience headache, stomach, uh, and all research research shows that they are twice more likely to be obese, even if there are uh, enough food available and the family is not suffering from uh, economic uh, deprivation. Still, the children are twice more likely to be to suffering from obesity. They are also. Uh, I would like to emphasize on the impact, the psychological and emotional impact that domestic violence could have on children, which is, um, which put them at risk of experiencing feeling uh, feeling of fear, confusion, guilt, and shame, and this psychological disturbance can is sometimes not easy for for family for parents to realize it, but it could manifest in their behavioral difficulties, like if they are misbehaving, if they are aggressive, if they are uh, um, withdrawing from the school or not performing well uh, in their homework, in their schoolwork. Um, so yeah, the impact of domestic violence in children can go on to many different forms uh, and impact on their education and the future employment opportunity, the future education performance, and even the uh, life expectancy. So children who are exposed to violence, the impact is not just limited to their childhood. It goes on to their adulthood life and could um, the children are, are more likely to adopt risky behaviors such as unprotected sex, um, smoking, uh, heavy drinking, risky, other type of risky behaviors that would could lead to um, di- diabetes or cancer or heart disease and uh, at the end could shorten their life expectancy. This is the impact of domestic violence on children. Well, thank you for that. Um, my colleague is also here and uh, he would like to ask some questions. I hope you can answer them as well, please. Sure. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Hashmi, and thank you for joining us. No I wanted to ask you, you've talked about uh, domestic violence here. Looking at uh, the statistics, uh, do, do you think that is currently on the rise? And, and if so, why, why do you think that is? Um, on the rise, uh, so it could be due to um, the better reporting sometimes, or it could be a, a true rise in, in the domestic violence uh, prevalence rate. So sometimes because, because of better education and awareness uh, raising campaign, all this stuff, so uh, women are, or people are better in recognizing that this is not acceptable and this is violence, and they are more likely to report it or where they are asked in the survey or the studies the government or researcher they do, they are more likely to, un- to report that, oh yeah, I've been treated unfairly, I've been treated violently. Or it could be a true increase in violence, which is happening in, in many countries across the world. It could be due to the war happening. Uh, it could be to uh, the socioeconomic uh, constraint. Um, all, all, all these factors could, could, could um, increase the, the risk of the, the domestic violence in different settings. Great. Thank you so much for that. And... Uh what can be some solutions or prevent- preventions to such violences? 
so the solution for gender-based violence and domestic violence needs a multi-layer, multi-faceted approach. So it's not one specific thing that can be done. It's an ongoing effort. It's not to need to be persistent. It could, uh, needs to come from individual communities, government, and organization all working to prevent uh, violence and to support uh, services. So I would say empowering women and girls through education and through better uh, economic opportunities and better opportunities for decision making uh, is one of the main one I would say and also um, training and, in, and engaging men and boys as allies in, in, in any fight against gender-based violence and domestic violence is very crucial to, to challenge the harmful uh, uh, gender norms and gender inequality in the society involving uh, community leaders, like religious leaders, to to, to take action and to um, and, and and also grassroots organization in prevention effort and in organizing community events, uh, workshops, and in promoting bystander intervention training to not to not be a passive bystander when you witness someone being treated um, violently, just to um, safely speak up and protect the the victims. Media and technology could have a massive uh, influence in this area, so unleashing and harnessing the power that media and social media uh, that have in reaching a very wide audiences uh, and using that power to promote positive relationship, what is healthy relationship, and to educate people about consent and respect and um, uh, and and all the characteristics that define healthy relationship is important, and they could all have uh, a role. The two more things that I could think of are providing uh, better services so, for survivors or the victim of violence. So the services are need to be um, accessible and need to provide comprehensive support and have the better funding to support uh, survivors. In some countries, uh, we do have Domestic Violence Act in, in, in UK, but there are some countries that uh, violence against women uh, and domestic violence is not illegal. And uh, honor-based violence is one of the forms that happens in some countries when a woman can be killed or a daughter or girl or wife can be killed in the hands of uh, male family uh, members, including father, brother, and the law uh, doesn't stop them or doesn't uh, take them accountable, keep them accountable for what they have done. So a better uh, advocating for a better uh, legal and policy form across all countries globally uh, would also is is important uh, act for this mm. one. No, certainly. I mean, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ashby, for highlighting uh, these very important issues as well. Um, before we do let you go, uh, just one final question from my side, uh, and that is on uh, if you can highlight the importance of zero discrimination day itself. Has it, you know, is there is there a le- relevance to have this day, and also if more can be done on this issue, um, then what 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 is that? I would say that this kind of. Uh, 
marking this as like zero, one day as a zero discrimination is is important and does provide opportunity to raise awareness. Even this conversation we have is advocating for rights and, you know, um, raising awareness that discrimination is not okay, is not acceptable, and every uh, single individual, they they should have equal rights um, and human rights is important and should be protected and protected. and particularly to advocate for the right of marginalized and vulnerable group. But I must, we must recognize that one day is not enough and addressing discrimination require an ongoing effort and just action beyond one day. And um, it could include, again, awareness uh, raising, campaigns uh, about education and training and uh, I can see like sometimes in our workplace, and I know it's uh, happening uh, across all sectors, that uh, workplaces, they are taking initiative and they are uh, providing a training and workshop opportunities to the employee about um, what are the even unconscious bias that we might have about other people that we don't know them properly, and but we are having a stereotyping and having this uh, prejudice about who they might be, who they might behavior. So they call it EDI, um, inclusion, diversity, uh, equality, diversity, inclusion training courses. I would say even this kind of training, they have important role, media and public awareness. Media have a massive role in in, uh, promoting uh, equal treatment for everyone and also community, as I said, religious uh, leaders, they have a role to play in this one. Um, And even to promoting human rights, no matter if this is uh, a violation of human rights is happening in UK or anywhere, anywhere in the world to uh, stand up and speak up and say, this is not right. If people are treated unfairly because of their religion, because of their gender, because of their ethnicity, uh, and genocide is happening, war is happening, any part of the world, if that's happening, to um, to speak up and say this is not okay and this is important. No, thank you so much, uh, Dr. London Hashmi. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise on this very important subject. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Dr. Dr. Hashmi and uh, some very important uh, points that she has mentioned. And, uh, you know, do, do if uh, our listeners, if you are sort of, um, you know, you've, you've been in an environment where you've seen discrimination happen firsthand and, you know, you, you yourself have been able to resolve it do do let us know and share your thoughts with us you can call us on 0208687 uh, we'd love to know uh, your thoughts on this subject uh, or you can tweet to us at voice of islam uk uh, so yeah do let us know um, we're just going to be joined now shortly by our next uh, guest on as well i do believe she is uh, she has joined uh, yeah. So yes, um, um, yes, uh, I can see. Yes, she has joined. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Hiba uh, Wardare. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Very yes. exciting. I know. I, I've I've seen your tweet. Uh, you were looking forward to this interview, as we were. 
I am very much looking forward to okay. it, very much, yes. So let me just uh, introduce you for the benefit of our listeners. You were born in Somalia and you came to London as a teenage refugee in 1989, fleeing the war uh, that was taking place in Somalia, uh, the civil war. Uh, and your testimonials and campaign work has have made you one of Britain's most prominent campaigners against FGM. Yeah. And uh, you've appeared in uh, numerous uh, publications, including uh, on BBC, uh, and yes. you've written a book as well. Um, yes. so, so, for the benefit of uh, our listeners, can you kindly explain what um, FGM is and why uh, is it harmful? So, FGM, first of all, stands for female genital mutilation. There's other names known for it, like female genital cutting, female genital cut, or the ones that our communities love to address it as female genital circumcision and um, it has huge huge impact on women's life uh, you are cut as a little girl very innocent trusty little girl but you end up with so many complications in terms of health wise emotional and psychological and physical as well and um, they are types of how they mutilate girls and um, it, it goes from a little bit of nicking to com- almost complete removal of genitalia and then that creates problems of in terms of girls having period you know you know consummating marriage and childbirth some of them can end up becoming infertile so it is a very very cruel cruel thing to be happening to young girl but have repercussions for the rest of your life Mm, how, how prevalent is it? How, how so, prevalent is it? Sorry. So it is. It is. Um, it is very prevalent, and unfortunately, in Western Europe, it has gone underground because, especially in London, as we are very much tackling it in school and in everywhere. So parents are very, very careful how this is done, and communities are very tight knit when it comes to keeping things that are based on community based very, very much. We know a woman was jailed a few weeks ago for seven years after taking her three-year-old daughter to Kenya to to have a FGM done on her. So it is it is very much thriving underground. And uh, what impact has it had on uh, on you personally? Oh my goodness! I was only six when you know they held me down and, and I experienced this and. Uh, it has changed completely who I was at that time. I was a young girl, very vibrant, very inquisitive, very open, free. I became very withdrawn little girl, you know, scared of every time I saw females huddled up. I was thinking, what's coming next? Are you going to be killed? What What is it that is coming next? And I had the worst type where they remove everything and then stitch you up, which left me with so many complications in terms of having period you know, having children, it has had huge impact. Emotional and psychological issues, that is even much, much more greater because physically you can heal up, but emotionally and psychologically, it literally scars your your soul. And mm-hmm. it's, a life, it's, a, it's a life trauma imposed on us by our loved ones. Oh dear. Um, my colleague is also with me um, and... Um Hero uh, um, would also like to ask a couple of questions, is that okay? Yep. Uh, good morning, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, one question I, I wanted to ask you uh, is a very important one, and when it comes to FGM, 
mm-hmm. I think it's very important to highlight that this is not an Islamic practice. Um, as you know, we don't find any mention of this in the Holy Quran or in uh, from the narrations of the Prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad, peace be upon him himself. Yeah. Why? Why, why is it then therefore practiced predominantly in Muslim countries? If you can also address that issue, please. Um, first of all, you're quite right. It's not in Quran, Torah, Bible, or anybody book or belief actually. It predates religion. And it is either cultural or traditional, uh, what you call a beliefs, whoever community is practicing it. And um, yes, it is mostly in those countries you just mentioned, but there's also other countries that people don't know about. FGM is practiced in 92 countries, countries like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Latin countries like Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, mm. countries like uh, Chechnya and Russia, Azerbaijan, you know, Pakistan, you know, uh, Iran, Iraq. Mm. It's a lot of countries, not only Muslim countries, it's actually a lot of people who practice this but we tend to pick up on muslim countries only but there are much more people than you know that practice this fgm than people think is only muslim thing it never is it's just a, a cultural or traditional practice whoever which is the kind of the same meaning but people have it different communities have the same meaning for it but it is practiced by all no, th- thank you so much for highlighting that as well. And, and I think uh, <laughs> quite often when uh, there is anything related to uh, Islam in any negative context, we've seen yeah. that the media is very quick to label it, yeah. <laughs> label yes. it Islamic. So, Oh, I have been attacked for this many times mm. on Twitter. I have been told, why are you Muslim? Why you but then I always bring it back to, I say it's got nothing to do. With religion, this is just uh, you know abuse that happens in a cultural sense, not in a religion sense, um, and it's not in you know it, it's practiced by Christianity, Muslim, you know Judaism, and, yeah. and and other people. So it's never ever exclusively to Islamic, but it is a horrific, horrific abuse, child abuse that okay. we all have to address it and never bring religion into it or dilute with religion because it has nothing to do with religion. No, thank you so much for highlighting that. And do you think that it it's because in some of these communities, do you think it's lack of education as well that they're not very much mm-hmm. educated about these issues? And you know what 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 are some of the complications it can have on the person you know who's gone through that? Mm-hmm. Do you think that can also be a factor? I think some of the communities, you're quite right, might be lack of education, but you would be surprised. Some people are very, very highly educated mm, and mm. they're still doing it because they believe in their cultural or traditional practice, whatever. There's a politicians who are, you know, their girls are happy, you know, cut and yeah. they know that. Men in our communities don't get involved because they are thought that women's body belongs to you, but you can't say anything about it. It's beneath you. So there is that discrepancies in, in our communities where they feel, um, you know, you can't talk about it. It's part of our life. It has been there for thousands of years. Who the hell are you to talk about this? And I always say to them, something that affected my life and continues to affect my life, I have every right to speak about it. Yeah. And, he, and I think it's been in our communities over 3,000 years. It was introduced by pharaohs, which means we still are, you know, subjecting to, to the girls to this. And imagine the death toll from the procedure itself, from the women giving birth, the maternal death rate related to FGM, the fistula it causes, the sexual dysfunction it causes, the kidney problems due to UTI, constant UTI. And, you know, it's, it, it keeps 
on giving. The list is massive. Absolutely. No, thank you um so much for um you know having a brave face and you know sharing your own uh, personal story with us as well so thank you so much for that and uh, before we do uh, before we do let you go one final question from us mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that how can we try to stop this injustice yeah. I- incurring in this world i am uh, so yeah. One of the things that I said I'm so excited about is it's you are the first you know Islamic channel to pick up this because a lot of my brothers and sisters are still even if they have a media platform or a platform like this they are very much afraid to speak about it which is quite frustrating. We have a charity called Educate Not Mutilate. We fundraise. We go to schools. We educate. We go to you know everywhere we wanted. And uh, we do need funding, and we love, love, love if a radio can get involved and help us fundraise as well for this important, important work. I think it's a humanity work apart from anything else, and I believe we all have a, you know, we all have a role to play. Men and women, we have a role to play, and I would love, love if the radio could get involved with us and fundraise for us, and, you know, it would be amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Hibo Vardari, for joining us and uh, and sharing your thoughts and your expertise um, on this particular subject thank you so much thank you for having me thank you thank you 02086877878 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us so we've just heard from uh, miss hibo wardere and uh, you know we we mentioned earlier as well that she's also written and published a book uh called cut one woman's fight against fgm in britain today so uh thank you so much for um actually uh taking your time out and joining us on this discussion and i think very importantly she's highlighted the fact that uh these practices you know they've been uh, uh they predate even uh, islam and they they've been around for thousands and thousands of years uh and it's not just uh it's it's a lot of different communities um you know which unfortunately still have this uh cultural practice as well but as as she mentioned earlier as well and i think it's very important that i highlight as well that it has nothing to do with islam whatsoever um and the practices we see that they cannot be found uh within the holy quran itself or even um at the from the narrations of the holy prophet peace be upon him as well so yes uh, uh we're just going to be um dwelling more on this discussion um and uh after the eight o'clock news uh we'll be listening to dr richard cooper uh he is a director of the bsw program and the co-coordinator of the african american studies at the uh, Whitner University USA uh, his research interests are culturally centered educational um uh, pedagogy uh, um healing cons- counseling agency based practice um for african american and other uh, disempowered population so we'll be listening to uh, Dr Dr Richard Cooper as well uh but now we're just going to be taking a little short break and uh after the short break we're going to be uh listening to the news and uh, we'll be back uh, straight after that so don't go anywhere you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording 
and lines are now closed. Peace, people, and good morning. Welcome back to the breakfast show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Tokit and we, Khani, myself, Walid uh, Ahmed. Before the break for the news, we were talking about Zero Discrimination Day and different ramifications of it. Uh, earlier, uh, before the broadcast, uh, this particular broadcast, we also spoke to Dr. Richard Cooper. And Dr. Richard Cooper is a director of the BSW program and coordinator of African-American studies at Widner University in the United States. And this is what he had to say when we talked to him earlier. Uh, I'm pleased to note that we have uh, Professor Richard Cooper on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Cooper is the director of the BSW program and coordinator African-American studies at uh, Widner University, USA. Uh, Professor Cooper, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, can you kindly tell us more about what drew you into the civil rights movement, activism, and social change? Yeah, you know, I was uh, the short answer is I was born black in the 50s. <laughs> and if you know anything about the history of being black in the 50s, that's what drew me in. I was from the north, but it's still what drew me in, the disparity, the problems, and the movement. No, it's accident of birth. Accident of birth and location. Actually, yeah, you didn't. You really didn't have any choice. Yeah, I was born into the uh, unintended caste system. Yeah, I was born into being black and the mistreatment. So it, that's what did it. Okay, and and was there anything in particular that spurred you on? Uh, yeah. So you know, we all we're all born where we're born. We grow up where we grow up. But you begin to understand it. You know, I'm an adult now. But you begin to have personal experiences of disparity, personal experiences. Um, and if you saw me, and it's only I'm only making this point that is relative to the question that you're asking. But when people say it's a matter of color. You know, you, you also learn that that's not true because I'm, I'm, I'm light-skinned. So that, you know, if you look at me, people say, well, what are you? I'm like, well, I'm black, but you can't tell necessarily by looking at me. So you, un- you begin to see that you were categorized as colored when I was growing up in my small town. And you also learned that there was a, a marginalized treatment based on that. Although you're in the north, it's the 50s and 60s, there were some spaces, some things that were – you were treated differently and worse uh, based on some identity. So it's you, you, you begin to become aware of that and your parents' response um, to that and their struggle with it. And then, of course, there was, you know, in the 60s, you know, other movements and TV and Martin Luther King and others, and you were trying to, even in the North, understand what your connection was to that. And, you know, you were, you've were you been called the N-word, but you're a kid. You don't really understand um, what that means, but you grow to understand. So ultimately, even if you don't end up being formally involved as I am or have been, you still have a set of experiences that begin to um, get you to understand oppression, at least related mm-hmm. to race because of um, where you grew up. Yes, interesting. Can you elaborate a bit more about the types of discrimination that people have to suffer in the USA and have suffered in the past, and what type of discrimination they they face today? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Again, you know, I I try not to be too long-winded, but um, so I teach some of this content for a living. I teach an introduction to African-American studies course, and I say to my students, 
you know, even as a learned person, um, the, the more I see and study and get examples of the varied form of oppression, both historical and at present, I am no longer surprised how heinous, how wicked, how evil, how awful, um, you know, from outright owning people, you know, in the, wor- you know, the, the worst form. You don't have rights. You're not a human being. You're a chattel. You're owned. Your labor's exploited. Your body's exploited. You know, the word, you're, 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 you're taken from a place, you know, arguably kidnapped, a prisoner of a war that you weren't in, sold as a commodity. So those ideas sometimes are, you know, are big ideas, you know, for students to wrap their heads around. But then when you look at the continuation of it um, where you can be murdered for being identified as a person who is a person of color and you're trying to leave a situation or de-escalate. So there's a continuity in structures, lack of opportunity. Um, when you're black, unfortunately, you look at data, African-American, and you still as a, as a group, as a racial group, tend to find yourself relegated to the um, – no matter what your personal situation is, the group that you belong to is often relegated to the most ill, most incarcerated, you know, poor, less education. You know, obviously I have a doctorate, but the group that I come from is still overrepresented in statistics and data that beg the question, you know, why is this so? And if you don't study it, um, you would tend to, you know, in this society, you would tend to blame yourself or your people and not see or understand the institutional impact of racism. So on the worst end, overly incarcerated, you know, um, these things that we live and experience, health care, um, and then the continuity with it that, you know, your people were owned, exploited, and so on. And, again, the more I learn, you know, example after example, I live in Delaware, the state of Delaware, and I've lived in Delaware for about 14 years, and we studied Brown versus the Board of Education in, well, you know, I studied it mainly on my own, but they talked a little bit about it, you know, in college. And you learned that there were schools, you know, that would not, um, uh, two sets of schools, colored, as we were called when I was growing up, and white schools. And I did not know that one of the Brown versus Board of Education schools was in this small, formerly colored school two miles from my home in Delaware. I didn't know it was one of the Brown of the Board of Education schools. And so you, you, this history is around you. Two miles away from my home where a mother wanted her daughter to be able to ride a bus to the colored school because they had to walk three or four miles, and she watched the white children bus to a school very near them that was the white school. So these things live around us. And they're still a part of this society, even when we're not made aware of them. And I was a little ashamed, even as an academic, to say, wait a minute, that school's down the street. I'm going to go and take a look at at it. So has there been a shift in the types of discrimination faced over the years? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, You know, certainly when you look at data, um, so the way that we try to answer the question is, for, you know, you look at data. So, yeah, there's been shifts. There has been some level of, you know, improvement when you look at, you know, education rates or college education rates. We've seen some improvements. Yes. And, again, we're dealing with, a, you know, a large cohort of people when, you, when you're basing it on race. So, yes, 
However, we also see the continuity of certain, you know, systemic problems. And it was kind of in my answer before, lack of access to healthcare, certain groups in urban centers, um, disproportionate uh, failure rates in high school. So, you know, um, unfortunately, we see that the continuity of some of the problems has stayed the same. Access to voting and people, um, we, we live in a society where some groups are making it harder to vote when it's something arguably that we would have thought was taken care of by the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. But we see the pendulum swinging back now where um, some groups are making it harder for people to register, get access to the polls, need additional ID. So it just really depends on who you're talking about. Police brutality, um, that's the Black Lives Matter movement, vis-a-vis -vis George Floyd. But the George Floyd was uh, certainly a situation where other black and brown people, men and women, disproportionately um, were in, you know, just daily living, um, killed um, from police action. So I guess it depends on who you're talking to and specifically what you're talking about. But I would say to you, and I'll, I'll shorten my answer, I would say to you that unfortunately, since this is Black History Month, we would have expected some of these problems to be ameliorated under what you know people like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was fighting for. And to see the consistency of some of the same pr problems, even you know many years after his death, uh, is disheartening. Mm. You mentioned the uh, Black Lives uh, Matters movement. Um, has that helped in uh, removing stigmatization, stigmatization and discrimination? And what are your thoughts on the progress of this movement? And, and what more can or should be done to improve the situation? Yeah, I, I, you know, if, if it were easy and if it were as simple, uh, if there were simple answers, uh, institutionalized oppression would be, um, would have been eradicated I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, arguably 100 years ago when uh, Abraham Lincoln signed, you know, quote, so-called freed the enslaved people. What we see, what the problem is, in my opinion, is there's an underestimation of the continuity of those who desire to oppress and disenfranchise others. If it were a simple fixing, you know, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, educating a populace, making groups more aware, holding police accountable, changing, you know, local national laws. If it were that simple of an answer, it would be something that could be ameliorated. But for every way that we push institutionally in society, protest in society, there is a push back. And arguably, you see it now when you look at the, what will be the choice of the two uh, presidential candidates, uh, Trump mm -hmm. and Biden, where under mm -hmm. Trump, you see the pushback of, um, in many areas, um, of, 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 of whites to an era that we've been fighting, you know, Black people and others have been fighting for now, you know, decades and decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about HIV and AIDS? I mean, what has the impact of this condition being to you, and why, why is it important to end the stigmatization? Yeah, well, I'm a social worker, so that's the other thing of notable mention, and, you know, I'm of a certain age. So, first of all, the, the global impact that we saw, still see, but we saw with HIV and AIDS, the, the, the stigma, the overrepresentation of black and brown people, not unlike 
you know, in more recent phenomena, COVID, you know, disproportionately um, black and brown people are over, overwhelmingly effective, as are others. We lost a lot of life. And so um, any movement or if there's any way that we can better educate, better inform, not uh, stereotype and support people related to HIV and AIDS, um, the better. Um, I attended when I was teaching at another institution, many, 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 many events where the names of those who were killed were called out in quilts. I've attended. I did several marches back in the day when, you know, people were seeking treatment and where people were, were trying to get away from the systemic mistreatment. You could argue that, yes, yeah, sure, we're in a golden era where some people have access to life-changing medication, but we would argue that there's still, you know, much more of a need to get that uh, medication, to get the, um, uh, to get effective safe sex methods out. So there's still a lot of work to do while, you know, there's been significant improvement. Great. I mean, that was great. Thanks. It was wonderful uh, speaking to you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. And, and I wish you all the best in the future. Uh, I'm pleased. So, right. Yes, so uh, we've just listened to the recording of uh, of uh, Dr. Richard Cooper. Um, and uh, we do have another clip with us. Uh, and this is, uh, we're looking at the Islamic perspective of when it comes to the question of discrimination as well and uh, the question that does Islam condemn the notion of racial supremacy so this clip we're going to play this is from the head of the Amdiya Muslim community the fifth Caliph His Holiness Azam Azam Ahmed may Allah be his helper and he calls for equality of all races and peace based upon justice um, and this is from his address at the annual convention in Germany um, on Saturday on the 26th of August 2017. So we're just going to be listening to that short clip now. The Holy Quran answers this rather longish question in just one verse. We have made you into tribes and many peoples only so that we could uh, know each other by those references. As far as the best among you is concerned, in the sight of Allah, the best is only he who fears the most. So, superior race, the concept of superior race, goes overboard with that declaration. But the best in the sight of Allah is only He who fears most. Now, that is a beautiful criterion because mental or physical capabilities, which appear to be the criteria of superiority in the world of is completely missing in this. Because even the most backward of human people, or even the most poorly uh, developed, among the human people, can fear Allah and excel, excel others, apparently superior people, in that uh, um, attribute or quality. So, in the sight of Allah, he becomes superior. So, if there are 
curious notion among people about the superiority. I will say to you, people, as far as the religious religion of Islam goes, this is the sectarian and we do not care what people believe. As far as, far as the Afghan is concerned, it is uh, so categorically refuted and denied and rejected by Islam and by that I mean by the Holy Quran and by the traditions and texts of Alim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that the person just does not rise. You know, the equality of Islam is in human welfare. This is why the whole system of Islam is based on those qualities. There is no question of any difference of race. So whatever doubt might have been left in anybody's mind was ultimately and finally and completely wiped out by the last sermon of the Muhammad Mustafa on the day of the last judge, the last hajj. And uh, there they made this declaration that I trembled under my coat. All those notions of superiority of one against the other, of Arab against the Ajam and so on and so forth. The most, most beautiful, most forceful declaration of human equality and uh, human values. So, Right, um, that was uh, the late Mirza uh, Tahir Ahmed IV, the successor of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, um, <coughs> quite um, using the Holy Quran and the verse of the Holy Quran and the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to demonstrate how Islam actually um, condemns the notion of racial supremacy. Um, and does that so emphatically. Um, and that very nicely brings us to the conclusion of this first uh, story that we want, or the first topic that we wanted to uh, discuss. Uh, moving on now to the second uh, main topic that we want to uh, consider. It is about Jewish and Muslim coexistence. And the ongoing uh, conflict in Palestine has led uh, to a misconception that Jews and Muslims cannot tolerate each other, or that the religions encourage their worshippers to fear and oppress each other. Uh, and this is something that is very much uh, contested. Um, if we uh, look at um, the shared history and heritage of the two peoples, we find that there is mutual respect, uh, and there was mutual respect in early Arabia in the early days of Islam, the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, advocated um, for the treatment of Jews with uh, respect and uh, dignity, uh, despite existing uh, differences between the two communities. Um, his teachings emphasized the importance of peaceful coexistence, and uh, this was evidence in his establishment of peace pacts with the Jewish tribes in Medina, which served as a foundational uh, principle for fostering interfaith harmony. Um, during periods of persecution, uh, Muslims in Palestine extended a hand of compassion and uh, hospitality and solidarity to Jewish refugees uh, fleeing uh, uh, oppression, mainly from Europe. Um, despite theological differences, there existed an initial harmony between the two communities, grounded in a shared sense of humanity that transcended religious boundaries, uh, and this demonstrated how compassion and empathy uh, could bridge divides and foster mutual 
understanding. Uh, both Muslims and Jews are monotheists. Jews come from the line of Abraham, and after uh, Prophet Moses brought the Torah, uh, they had a succession of prophets and kings. As the Holy Quran was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, those same Jewish prophets and kings were mentioned with respect in the Quran. Indeed, Muslims are obliged to uh, believe in and respect all of the previous uh, prophets, Jews and Muslims, also have many common religious practices. Uh, both uh, practice uh, male circumcision and have similar dietary restrictions such as not eating pork. Um, and both groups uh, see Jerusalem as a key spiritual, um, spiritual uh, city. Uh, I am pleased to note that uh, we have uh, our first expert to discuss this particular topic uh, is Professor Yusuf uh, Rappaport, um, and uh, he is a professor of Islamic history at Queen Mary University. So, and he's published, uh, um, uh, well, uh, I assume a number of books on uh, on uh, Islamic law uh, of marriage and divorce. Um, and on maps uh, made in uh, medieval Islamic world and on the work of medieval theologian Ibn Taymiyyah. So thank you very much for coming on, uh, Professor. Uh, Professor Rapoport, can you hear me? Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me this morning. Okay. I'm very pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, what are some historical examples of Jewish and Muslim coexistence and collaboration? And, and can you highlight any key periods or regions where such harmony was particularly pronounced? Thank you very much. Yes, I would say that, first of all, we need not to think of it as uh, utopia. Uh, I don't think we should, as historians, uh, think that everything was rosy and uh, uh, coexistence. But it is important to say, especially in current circumstances, uh, that uh, under Muslim rule, Jews had more uh, rights and more freedoms than under Christian rule in the Middle Ages. Um, it was a period when uh, when Jews lived under Muslim law, under Muslim rule, of course. Um, so, so we're not talking about equal relationships, but within the framework of the Sharia. Um, we had, Jews had uh, these rights. Um, you were asking about specific periods, and I think it is true that uh, in the in medieval Spain, uh, especially in the 10th and 11th century, so a millennium ago, we have a period of very close uh, coexistence in which, uh, first of all, we see a number of Jewish politicians. Uh, leaders becoming uh, key uh, viziers, commanders, generals in the army of the uh, Muslim states in Spain, for example. That's one example I can give is Samuel of Nagrila, who was the vizier and the commander of the army of the Sultan or the Amir of Granada in southern Spain and fought for them and led the, the army. And there were several of those under the uh, in uh, medieval Spain. And this was also a period uh, where uh, Hebrew uh, poets uh, wrote in Spain in imitation of Arabic poetry. And we have very close intellectual exchange between 
Muslim and Jewish intellectuals within this framework of um, of Muslim rule Spain, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the Ottoman uh, uh, period in Palestine, was there coexistence then? Mm. We have to speak about Palestine. So first of all, the Ottomans, um, 1492, I just mentioned Spain. In 1492, uh, the uh, Christian kings of central Spain conquer uh, the last remaining Muslim states in Spain and immediately uh, expel all the Jews from Spain that was eventually extended to the remaining Muslims. But first, all the Jews from Spain were either were told either to leave or to convert to Christianity. And they found safe haven, those who left found safe haven in North Africa, in what is today, to, to Tunisia and Morocco and Algeria. And many, many, many went to Constantinople, then Istanbul, and to the, the Balkans, and to the Middle East, and to Palestine. Uh, and there they found safe heaven from the persecution under the Catholic uh, kings of Spain. Uh, Palestine, um, before colonialism, before Zionism, had probably 10% Jewish population uh, who lived in mainly in the cities. Uh, they were part of the local society, part of Ottoman society. Uh, of course, again, as um, not equal to the ruling uh, Ottoman Muslim elite, uh, but they were part of the fabric of the urban society in Jerusalem, in Safed, and in, even in Gaza, uh, where there were uh, a Jewish co- there was a Jewish community throughout the 15th, 16th, and 17th century with important Hebrew poets. Uh, visiting there, uh, and uh, it was part of a wider Jewish world that uh, enjoyed relative uh, freedom, prosperity uh, under the Ottoman Empire. And um, how have religious, cultural, and social factors influenced the relationship between Jews uh, or Jewish and Muslim communities? How have these uh, uh, been influenced throughout history? Yes, thank you for that. I think that um, we have to uh, say, first of all, that uh, we often compare Jewish existence in Islam to Jewish existence under Christian, in the Christian Middle Ages, in Christian Europe. And one thing that comes across very clearly is that in, in the Muslim Middle East, including Palestine and wider, there was no restrictions on Jews having most jobs. And we have evidence, very extensive evidence, of commercial relations and partnerships between uh, Jews and Muslims uh, throughout this period. Uh, we also uh, know that there were no uh, uh, restrictions on residence. There were no Jewish ghettos uh, for nearly everywhere. Jews lived in proximity to Muslims in mixed neighborhoods. Uh, even if some neighborhoods we know as the Jewish quarter or the Haaf el Yahud and so forth, uh, they were not exclusively Jewish, and Jews were not forced to live there. Sometimes we just congregated. So we have a mixture and a mixture of. Uh, 
economic and social. And I would say also uh, it is important to say the linguistic aspect. Jews in the Middle East spoke Arabic. Mm-hmm. They often wrote uh, uh, the Arabic in Hebrew letters in a language that we historians call Judeo-Arabic, a dialect of Arabic that was used by the Jews, and they wrote it often in Hebrew letters. But they mainly spoke Arabic and used Hebrew only as a language of prayer and liturgy. So, And their names often used the same uh, names as uh, the, the Muslim neighbors would use, in the sense that they would be called Abu Sa'ad, or uh, Abu Barakat and so forth. These were names of Jewish um, uh, uh, Jewish uh, men, uh, and so and, and in that sense, they were no different from, let's say, uh, Christians who lived under Muslim rule who also adopted the Arabic language, or in Iran, let's say, the Persian language. So all this uh, was, of course, important in terms of religious. Uh, I would. I think it is under uh, not known enough the religious exchange between uh, Islam and Judaism. Uh, of course, you know uh, your listeners know that uh, uh, early Hadith material included a lot of Israeliat things that were Hadith uh, that were passed on from. Uh, uh, Jewish uh, communities that uh, then converted to Islam, or at least was in contact with with Muslims, um, but also Jewish um, theology and law was influenced by um, by um, living under Muslim rule, and we exchanged the exchange with Muslim philosophers and theologians. Uh, the most important philosopher of the Middle Ages, for in the Jewish tradition, Maimonides was a physician for uh, the Sultan of Cairo and wrote a philosophical treatise uh, that was a response and expansion of the, of the philosophical treatises of um, uh, Ibn Rushd, uh, Averroes from Spain. So uh, we have a real exchange of uh, intellectual ideas and religious ideas. Very interesting. Uh, no, thank you for that. Um, my colleague will want to continue this discussion, um, so over to him. Uh, good, good morning, uh, Professor Yusuf. Thank you so much. Great discussion here. Um, I wanted to ask you, in what ways has the conflict in Palestine uh, contributed to the misconception that Jews and Muslims, they cannot live together in harmony? Yeah, this is such a painful questions to question to ask in these in these times of of, of catastrophe and 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 killing. Mm. I would like to say that um, when that as I said earlier that uh, before Zionism, before colonialism, in 1917, let's say, 10% of the people in Palestine were Jews, and they were people who mostly spoke Arabic and were part of the local society, even if not uh, part of uh, the ruling elite, which was Muslim. When Zionism came uh, and uh, as, as a, as a uh, solution for problems in Eastern Europe, uh, not as a, uh, and 
it was an, a, a way for Europe to shift uh, Jews uh, into uh, somewhere else. Um, and then uh, when it came to that, um, uh, the mass immigration of Jews, many of them refugees into Palestine, uh, of course uh, created uh, a backlash among the local population, which was uh, mostly Muslim with some Christian elements. Um, and this, uh, for, the, for the Jewish immigrants, for the Jewish immigrants, Islam was not a threat as such at the, at the start. But I think a lot of the, uh, naturally, a lot of the resistance to Jewish immigration was gradually um, formulated in anti-Jewish, uh, in anti-Jewish uh, terminology, that, that it is the Jews that are coming in, not Zionists. And that has then uh, cre uh, created um, some specifically anti-Jewish uh, rhetoric uh, that also drew on anti-Semitism in, in Europe. Um, and that has, because of the conflict created in the Arab world, uh, a real, um, uh, this is not um, this is not a myth that uh, there, was a, uh, there was and probably it still is um, use of rhetoric that the Jews are, uh, have uh, specifically controlled the media and controlled the world and so forth. Uh, and this is unfortunately uh, re uh, continues. On the other side, as Israel became more and more oppressive towards its, its uh, Palestinian the people, the Palestinian people, whom it rules over, um, the rhetoric in Israel and among Zionist uh, supporters has become more and more anti-Muslim because Muslim groups have led the resistance in many cases uh, to to Israeli oppression, um, and that uh, has now created a situation where a lot of what is essentially an anti-colonial struggle is now framed on both sides as a religious struggle, as a religious eternal struggle between Jews and Muslims. It is very tragic given that most Jews lived under Muslim rule next to Muslim uh, neighbors and speaking the same language as their Muslim neighbors for over a millennium, um, so uh, there, there is really no historical basis for the claim that this uh, conflict is somehow based on um, hatred between Muslims and Jews. I don't thank you so much for that. Um, you know, you've explained it really well, but I think generally, uh, Professor Yusuf, I, I have another question just following on from that. When we look at the Palestine, the Holy Land itself, um, has that always been under conflict? Has has there's always been a party which has wanted to conquer over it? Um, if you can also share your um, expertise on that as well. Thank you. Um, for, uh, I'm now teaching a class uh, for final year undergraduates on the history of Palestine. Uh, before uh, the conflict and before Zionism. Um, 
Palestine became a holy land when Christianity came uh, to the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire became Christian, they became interested in the birthplace of Christianity, which is Israel. And they then took over some of the holy places for Jews and made them their own. And when the Muslim came and uh, conquered Palestine in the 7th century, 400, 400 years after Christianity came to Palestine, um, of course, uh, as you know, uh, the Umayyads built the Dome of the Rock, the wonderful structure of the Dome of the Rock, on what remained from the uh, Jewish temple now not in use for seven centuries, and uh, El Aqsa Mosque next to it. Um, and this uh, then was followed 400 years, years later by the Crusades, who wanted to claim Jerusalem for themselves, mm. and then were defeated by Salah al-Din. Um, so there definitely have been periods in which Christians and Muslims fought over Palestine because it was so important for religiously mm. uh, for Christians and for Muslims. And it became even more important for Muslims as they repelled the Crusades and realized that they have to make the land holy more and more in order to keep it and to keep Jerusalem. Uh, as a as a Muslim holy site, with all the implication for the day of resurrection and the site of the Israel Mirage, the Jews were not in this period were not a political force. So uh, it was Muslim and Christians who fought over the over Palestine, over the Holy Land. Uh, Jews were not in the period uh, after after the defeat of the Jews by the Romans. They were not a political force. It is only with Zionism that Jews, one could say, had their moment of control over the Holy Land. Uh, so um, my hope is someone who actually grew up there uh, is that uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians will share the land uh, and this uh, land that is holy for the free Abrahamic religions rather than have uh, exclusive control over it. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Yusuf, for uh, joining the discussion this morning. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for, but uh, thank you so much once again for sharing your expertise um, on this particular subject. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call. Uh, if you do want to get in touch with us. So we've just listened um, to Professor uh, Yusuf and uh, he's beautifully explained um, how if we look at history itself, we've seen that Muslims and, uh, and Jewish communities, how they've coexisted for many, many years uh, uh, hundreds of years ago, um, he, he mentioned um, even um, you know within within Spain that uh, some Jewish uh, commanders who were actually appointed as the vizier of the armies <coughs> at that time, um, and generally um, you know the the trade between the two communities 
has the, this great history behind that and the fact that the Jewish themselves even the the early Jew, Jewish themselves that lived in Palestine you know they themselves spoke Arabic um, Arabic itself uh, became a part of their literature as well um, so it's what we see is that there is rich history that uh, Muslims and Jews they did coexist and they they lived very happily together in fact in actual fact um, what's interesting is that when we look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah the Almighty be upon him uh, when he had migrated to Medina from Mecca there were communities different communities there um, and there were also the Jewish tribes also um, that lived in Medina and uh, they they lived uh, very happily um, although there are, there are certain uh, you know there there is narration in history where um, you know alliance was made uh, we find for example in the bat- battle of uh, of the ditch how one of the uh, Jewish tribes um, they did uh, retaliate at that time and uh, uh, they they went against the alliance but we we, we see that when uh, the the prophet peace be upon him when he had migrated he had uh, made an alliance with the communities over there and uh, uh, the jewish also being there so th- this is what we see so we're just waiting now for our next um, guest to come on we will be joining very shortly and listening to dr uh, yoda stolov he is the executive director of Interfaith um, Encounter Association, building peaceful intercommunal relations in the Holy Land. He is active in many interfaith activities in Israel and the recipient of the Immortal Chaplains Foundation 2006 Prize for Humanity. And uh, Dr. Yoda has also lectured at many international conferences and written publications on religion, peace, and interfaith. Um, so we're just we're just waiting for him to to join. Um, but uh, before before we do that, um, uh, understanding religious coexistence, we know that for many centuries uh, from. 711 CE until 1492 Spain was a Muslim Al-Andalus and it became a beacon for development in Europe and a hub for commerce and theology and culture and the environment led to creative marvels such as the Alhambra Palace in Granada and under the yoke of Muslim leadership, many Muslims, many sorry, many Jewish communities thrived. Uh, Moses ben uh, Maimon was born in Cordoba in 1135 CE, and and he w- he would become one of the greatest Torah scholars and eventually the head of the Jewish community in Egypt. And many Jews uh, attained high office due to their skills in trade, poetry, and medicine. Ibn Shaprud became the trusted advisor and doctor to the caliph, as well as his duties in the Jewish community. 
And there were many other examples such as Samuel bin uh, Nagirilia who from 1038 to 1056 CE served as the first minister of Granada and he was known for his wisdom, dignity, poetry and was also a serving rabbi. And uh, if we look at Turkey, uh, Jewish communities all had coexisted in old settlements in Turkey for many centuries. But the largest influx was after 1492, after the Jewish and Muslims, they were exiled from Al-Andalus in Spain after the Christian uh, reconquest, as uh, Professor Yusuf also mentioned, that after that many uh, Jewish uh, communities had also migrated towards Turkey. And uh, Sultan uh, Bayezid II, he welcomed 150,000 Jewish refugees to Turkey at that time. And um, they brought with them the culture, innovation and knowledge from Islamic Spain. And with the encouragement of land and tax uh, exemption, soon settled and thrived and many would go on to take senior roles in Ottoman Empire including doctors, administrators and diplomats and other wave of Jewish immigrants were welcomed from Europe after the Second World War and uh, modern Istanbul which has Jewish heritage in area around the um, Galata Tower and uh, if we look at the time after the death of Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, Islam began to grow in influence. Uh, The the second caliph, Hazrat Umar, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him, came to Jerusalem in simple clothes in uh, 638 CE. And uh, many saw him as a liberator from the Roman rule and the various Christian denominations and the Jews. uh, They were given freedom to worship and Jerusalem held a special place in the hearts of the Muslims as originally they prayed in the direction of the city and Umar peace be upon him he signed a priest treaty enabling Jews and Christians to live in peace and this pact uh, would act as a uh, template for future coexistence of different faiths if practiced in the spirit of original pact and intacted by the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and uh, moreover, after the Second World War, the authorities of the uh, of the Holocaust faced by the Jewish communities across m- much of Europe, Muslim of Palestine welcomed Jewish refugees, and many housed them in their own in their own farms, and they were seen as fellow monotheists, and uh, there was initially no issue between them, and the conflict soon started but as a result of political aspirations of the Zionist movements rather than any religion issues between the two communities. So for more than 1400 years Muslims and Jews they have uh, they have uh, recognized that they have much more in common with each other than they have differences and have been able to coexist and thrive and both 
share a common heritage and history and similar religious practices. And this does not mean that relations have always been perfect. There are many instances where there were where there were disagreements and even uh, atrocities between the two communities. And these were inspired by politics rather than religion, just as the current ongoing struggles between Palestine and Israel are. And perversely, whilst the whilst the um, conflicts rages, it has united Jews and Muslims through common voices of peace. And there are many instances where Jewish people facing persecution in Christian countries fled to Muslim territories for sanctuary and were able to thrive, or where Jewish and Christian communities were able to prosper in Muslim territories and uh, i remember uh, when uh, you know when this just a few months back when uh, this conflict has been taking place um one of our one of our mosques in uh, in haifa in israel um they actually hosted an event in uh, solidarity of the whole conflict which is going on between uh, israel and palestine in in gaza and uh, a solidarity event was held and you know the, the, we've seen pictures that the mosque itself it was uh, filled with jewish jewish people coming in solidarity so um you know that itself needs to be highlighted as well and uh, certainly you know going through this segment today we we've come to the conclusion that uh, there is a beautiful and very rich history between muslim and jewish communities living side by side um you know uh, as as brothers and sisters um and i think that itself uh is what should be highlighted and and i think brother believe with that uh i think I, I'll, I'll conclude it from my side and i'll hand the mic over to you to close this uh, particular segment thank you very much imam tagira <clears throat> yes you're quite right um uh, about uh, all that you've said and uh, uh, it is now time to actually uh, come uh, to bring uh, this uh, particular topic to a close in fact bring this uh, particular broadcast to a close and uh, that means that we have to say a few words uh, um, by way of token of thanks um, to those people who have been involved in the production of this particular uh, show um, our uh, production team, uh, the uh, lead producer Nargis Nasser, uh, producer uh, Barira Suhail Mansoor, uh, trainee producer uh, Dr. Saqib Ahmed, they're all worthy of our gratitude, uh, as are the researchers uh, Tahdim and Hannah Sayed, uh, Maharu Chala Ahmed as well. Uh, so, thank you to them. I mustn't forget, uh, mustn't forget Muhammad Shafiq uh, Saab, who made sure that technically everything went uh, smoothly throughout the uh, throughout the broadcast. And um, let's also just uh, say by way of summary as to what we were able to discuss. We were able to cover uh, the first of our main topics about Zero Discrimination Day and talk about uh, different forms of dis discriminations and prejudices that exist in our society and in order to help us understand uh, the issues better 
we spoke to uh, Dr. Ladan Hashimi, uh, an internationally recognized ex- uh, expert in the application advanced quality research methods in both social science and epidemiology. Um, and uh, we also were able to uh, hone in Hiba uh, Wardare. She was uh, very keen to raise the issue uh, of uh, uh, FGM, female genital uh, mutilation, and the discrimination uh, that uh, results in this um, this this uh, practice, this evil practice. Uh, and so we were able to learn more about that uh, through that uh, discussion with her. And then uh, we spoke to Dr. Richard Cooper earlier about uh, uh, discrimination and different forms of discrimination that uh, uh, take place in society, particularly in the United States, and looked at also some of the work that he has been able to conduct uh, and the research that he has been able to undertake in that uh, in this particular field. Um, for the second topic, we uh, reviewed uh, the Jewish and uh, Muslim coexistence. Um, and uh, trying to counter the uh, supposition, the misconception that there is uh, something uh, wrong, or not wrong, but something that cannot exist, that Jewish and Muslim coexistence cannot take place. So this is belied by the fact that uh, over the centuries, when you look at um, and look into history, we find that there was... um, a peaceful coexistence between Jewish and Muslim communities uh, for hundreds of years in Spain and in the Holy Land. Uh, and this is uh, before the modern era of colonialism. So that's not uh, uh, exactly borne out by what we find in history. And in order to understand that aspect better, we were able to talk to um, uh, Professor um, uh, Rapapur. Um, who is uh, who teaches at Queen Mary University? Um, so he was able to highlight uh, some of the ways in which uh, this uh, particular coexistence has prevailed in the past in various parts of the world. In fact, what he was able to highlight is that where uh, Jews have found intolerance most was in uh, European countries at the hands of uh, those people who claim to be Christians. So that was an interesting discussion that we had with him. So uh, thank you to all of them as well. And last but not least, we should also thank our uh, uh, listeners for joining us. Do join us again uh, from Monday to Friday when we have the breakfast show from 7 to 9. So until next time, it's Salaam Alaikum for myself and Salaam Alaikum from Imam Tukit and Khan as well. Salaam Alaikum.